Hello and welcome to SUPEX Radio. I'm your host, Bob Fitz. SUPEX Radio is a weekly talk show devoted to startup and early stage entrepreneurship, venture investing, and small businesses in general. For more information, including past broadcasts, future episodes, and our radio network affiliates, please visit our website, www.sup-x.org. And remember to follow us on Twitter at TheSupex, and that's at T-H-E-S-U-P-X. Today's episode is sponsored by Silverstream Consulting, a full-service marketing and PR consultancy specializing in guiding startups and professional service firms to marketing success through innovative and strategic approaches to branding, positioning, PR, and more. For more information, please visit www.silverstreamconsulting.net to learn more. And our guest today is John Christopher, co-founder and managing partner of Christopher and Riceberg, one of the premier intellectual property law firms in the Southeast. John, thanks so much for being with us today. Well, thank you, Bob. John, um, intellectual property is a subject that uh, people don't dive into much, and everybody understands with technology startups, we need ITP and need to protect it. But oftentimes, I don't think the conversation goes any deeper than that. So at a basic level, let's just start off with some definitions, and then we'll increasingly talk about stuff that goes deeper. So, you know, in simplest terms, define what intellectual property really is, and what does an intellectual property really do? Okay, well, thank you. Well, before I talk about what intellectual property is, I'll explain the very obvious reason why most of us really don't know much about it. Um, It's important to note that IP or intellectual property is rarely addressed as part of formal education, almost never in undergrad programs, and unless the students involved in extracurricular entrepreneurial programs offered at some colleges like UM's Launchpad or FAU's Tech Runway, or in an MBA program, perhaps one lecture, or even a law school where, frankly, most people don't take intellectual property courses, uh, we find that almost everyone we meet, regardless of job title, age, experience, whatever, has very limited knowledge in this area unless they've actually had uh, some IP topic as part of their job, and even then it's compartmentalized. So it's understandable why people really don't know what it is. So what is it? It's intangible property. It's the fruit of the mind. It's patents, trademarks, copyrights, trade secrets, know-how. And um, and there it is. And each one of those is a very full and robust topic. So... Uh... What does that mean that uh, intellectual property attorneys like you actually do to help people who have that fruit of the mind? Sure. Well, like every attorney, we're um, providers of legal services. In this case, it's um, specific to this subject area. If patents are of consideration, uh, IP attorneys must be registered to practice before the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. And that's an important distinction because only registered patent attorneys can advise on uh, patent issues. You don't have to be a registered patent attorney to advise generally on IP as it relates to a business transaction. And unfortunately, many of the people who do that advising really don't know the subject in depth. Um, So often a shorthand for IP attorney is a patent attorney. Um, And there it is. That's what we are. So when I go to retain an intellectual property attorney, do I need to ask to see their registration with the U.S. Patent Office to make sure they're not just kind of superficially involved? Or, you know, how do I usually do diligence that someone has the skills to really help me in the way that they should? Well, that's a good question. And it, a lot of it depends upon um, your comfort level with the attorney in general. And that's important. You need to have a good uh, working relationship. You need to be able to speak openly and candidly. 
And when you look at credentials, uh, sometimes um, it's very nice to have a referral from someone else who is um, trusted by you. And most attorneys have very good websites with good bios, and you can get a very good sense of their qualifications and experience. But yes, um, a, a patent attorney, it'll be obvious that they're registered to practice, and other attorneys will that will be the one area that they'll decline if they if they don't have that registration. And so your main uh, focus are, um, if I understand, because you and I have been friends for a number of years, that uh, it's patents, trademarks, copyrights, and litigation. Isn't aren't those kind of the four main food groups for what you guys focus on? Or they are, they are, and but those exist in a, in the context of doing other things. For example, uh, when someone's seeking financing, or if someone's an investor looking to make an investment and do due diligence on a company, um, intellectual property often plays an important role. And so we're involved in the business transactions and the financial transactions uh, in addition. And of course, the internet and all of its um, complexities uh, we deal with daily. So when when should a startup go to their intellectual property attorney? Like I, I, I met with a friend or a startup. I meet hundreds a year and someone had a really great idea. And... Uh, but I wasn't really sure if that was the right time to come to you or not because it was ex- it was incredibly well researched and even documented. But I-, I wasn't sure if it was too soon to come to you or do they need to have kind of drawings if it's hardware or is it better to come later? Like, how do I know when I should go see you? I mean, usually people wait till things are too late and it's a problem. Has been my experience in most things in life. <laughs> well, I think you're right. I, I think that. that- and timing is always difficult. Again, part of the problem is there's a lack of awareness about the uh, subject matter in general and, of course, the specifics. And so I, I, I'm not surprised by it, and I don't, quote, unquote, blame people for it. But uh, early is fine because many professionals in, in, in all areas are happy to give time to people for free uh, and sometimes a surprising amount of time. Um, <clears throat> to orient them with the hope that they're credible and they show promise and um grow uh, with that attorney or whatever the professional is. And so uh, we recommend that. And in particular, we recommend that people go to the many wonderful, um, almost free programs um, that are offered by organizations like SUPEX, which just had a fabulous uh, conference with um, dozens of speakers who spoke in depth. And the nice part is there are related professionals who go there who will engage in very extended conversations, you're getting a sometimes an hour-long free consult over a bag of chips. So um, I encourage people to go early, especially go to the, the many wonderful conferences we have in Florida and nationally if you don't find what you want here. But for most new in entrepreneurs, uh, the, the, the plate is very full of wonderful programs. Uh, again, it's a, it's a wonderful ed- education that you're not getting anywhere else. And that's a good time to perhaps meet an attorney. Um, or at least learn what you need. So what do you bring? You come with your vision of what you want your project to be. And sometimes it's to start a company. Sometimes it's to grow a company. Sometimes it's to flip it. Sometimes it's to have a product or a service uh, that's sold or licensed. Um, so whatever your, your your proposal is, you speak with us. We uh, will tell you, okay, here's some milestones for you to consider. So when the right time comes, you come back to us and we we deal with that problem. So we, we develop a little bit of a, a strategic plan. If you want to spend a little bit of time, pay a small amount of money, we can do something more formal that gives you some pretty concrete milestones and, and, and possible um, pricing so you can do the, uh, the appropriate fundraising and allocation if you have money. 
I'm assuming you're like, I mean, attorneys, you know, are consultants. I mean, you're legal consultants. And so I'm assuming that you're like a lot of consultants that you'll talk to most people for a very limited amount of time if they have a seriously well thought through, uh, you know, what a product or, or service, et cetera. Um, but they shouldn't just come to you to kick an idea around. It should be pretty well thought through. They should have done some research, et cetera, right? Oh, sure, especially with the patent. But sometimes they don't even know what type of research they need to perform. And so, in a sense, and again, we don't mind as long as somebody is not just a, a classic tire kicker. Uh, we're happy to spend time with people to help them understand what they need to research. And that's part of the problem. They don't even know how to begin to do patent research. And so our first meeting together kind of give me a little deeper sense of what that would be like. So I, I've, I've, I've got a great idea, for instance. I'm a startup. I've done a great, got a great idea. I've done a little bit of research about my business model and the market and, you know, who the competitors are and some of the features, I, you know, whatever I'm doing should have. Now I come to you. How does that where – where do we go through? What, what is our conversation – you know, you're going to point me in the direction to do some more research. Are you going to do a patent search right away? Like what's likely to happen in that first meeting? Well, that's a good question, and it depends a lot upon the experience and sophistication of the, of, of the party coming for a consult. Uh, and it depends upon the funding level. So I, I like to get a scope of what we're dealing with, project size, uh, both currently and aspirationally. Uh, it's a very different – type of advice. It isn't one size fits all. You deal with a lot of different issues if a person is actually starting a company and planning to hire employees and have an R&D program and a sales department, a marketing department. You you obviously have a much more complex discussion than I have a great new paperclip that just holds the paper even tighter than the one before. <laughs> and I say that as I'm looking at a paperclip on the desk here. But um, but that's but but you do see that range, and um, uh, we we deal primarily with very large corporations that are that are very sophisticated in their approach, and so it's it's fairly straightforward. But the the focus here is for someone maybe who's a little less familiar. So we'll say, here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to provide us. We need this type of documentation, and we have worksheets uh, that we provide. And then once we look at the information, it enables us to. Um, ask for follow-up information, tell them perhaps they need to engage an engineering consultant, a software consultant to further develop an idea. Uh, we advise them to make sure that they um, uh, have the proper engagement agreements with consultants. And uh, that typically is actually a very big problem. Uh, people hire consultants all the time and end up usually in disputes over money. Um, and then there's a withholding of key information, uh, supposedly or actually, and just big so it's important to get that straight and uh, and outline who owns the back to that fruit word again who owns the the, the fruit of the collaboration and um, and th there's no one right answer to who owns it or should own it but that's important so we, we have that discussion and then we'll say okay I now have enough information and it's not just a patentability search there are many types of patent searches uh, often probably a more important one is called a state of the arts search where we go and look at the particular field of let's say paper clips and say, what have people done with paper clips in the past? Well, it's an old art, and so you have things in literature and old Sears catalogs from 1884, but you have patents too. And so we, we want to see who's active in the field, and it might help you identify uh, potential licensees or people who might buy the technology or partner with you. It helps you identify impediments to succeeding, and uh, often I hear it 
venture capital conferences. I hear people present. We're the first people to come to market with the new plastic paperclip. And then we roll our eyes and say, my God, if you had done the least bit of research, you would have found you're not the first. But perhaps there is something special about what you do, and that's what you need to emphasize. Um, so that type of research is, is critical. You might find that there are absolutely no pathways forward. Every single uh, other people are getting patents too, and so they, they block your way, and uh, you can't move forward. Well, that's important to know. Instead of getting money, ramping up, uh, investing in prototypes or whatever, marketing, don't only be sued the first day you launch your product. So that's one type of search. The next search is the patentability search, and we're looking at um, whether or not you have features that are that meet the requirements of a patent. They're novel and non-obvious. Um, and so that those are the types of searching that we typically start with. And then once we have the results, then we say, here we are, here's our pathway, and it might be narrow, or wow, you've got some great broad opportunity. And then we talk about filing patent applications, and then how that fits into the overall strategic plan. We don't want the tail wagging the dog. And so, okay, so we've had our initial meeting, and you've kind of, you know, suggested some additional research and documentation, and then you do some patentability searches and other searches, and we all come to the conclusion that, hey, things line up pretty well. Okay, so now what? Like, what's the process? I mean, copyrights and trademarks are a lot easier to understand, but uh, on the patent side, like, does this three months, six months, nine months a year? I'm assuming it's a function of the complexity of what's trying to be patented, but... I don't really know. Well, in part, um, a very complicated idea, a very complicated technology, often is easier to patent because it's so advanced or highly technical and there's so many details. The harder things to patent actually are the simple things that a lot of people might be inspired to try. The It's actually a misconception. A lot of people say, well, there's something I've heard of called a provisional patent. They're very cheap, and I can file it, and I can defer expenses to file the non-provisional application until later. While a provisional application is not examined, and it doesn't turn into a patent, it just acts as a placeholder in time. The non-provisional is the application that's examined and can turn into a patent. The process normally um, takes about two to three or four years, depending on the subject area, from filing an application until a patent's granted if it's going to be. And they're granted between, let's say, 60 and 70% of the time, a well-written, well-researched idea. But what's interesting is the provisional delays that even further. People say, well, I have a year from filing a provisional before I file the non-provisional. But the problem is if you're trying to raise money or obtain um, business partners, that doesn't help you. Typically, a potential investor wants to see that you almost have something. Um, you're, 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 you've taken a lot of progress. So what you should do is file a non-provisional application on an expedited basis. You're going to pay a little more money for that, but in less than a year, you'll have a decision. So by the time you finally make an appointment and get to meet someone who might partner with you, you're probably already halfway through the process, and perhaps you have a favor favorable indication. So I like to envision the entrepreneur sitting at the table saying, well, yes, and they'll say, do you have a protect?" position? Well, yes, I do. I filed a non-provisional application accelerated, and I've already received indication that it's allowable. Contrast that with the person who says, well, we filed a provisional application. It's pretty informal. They don't cost much. And within three or four years, we'll know what's going on. Well, it's obvious which way the discussion is going to go. That person is going to be given the, well, come back to me in four years, whereas the other person might have the opportunity to continue the discussion. So um, again, it, it's 
it's a timing thing and it's a money thing. And that, of course, always is a problem with entrepreneurs is uh, allocating the money and prioritizing things. But if it's a technology play and that's the, the, the hook you're relying upon, uh, you do need to emphasize that and try to take the accelerated steps to have an asset uh, early on if possible. So, John, so uh, I've accepted your advice. I'm not going to provide uh, uh, apply for a provisional patent. I'll do for the expedited non-provisional, as you said. Does that put me in a queue? I mean, let, I mean, if someone's got dang near the exact same thought and starts a week later, but we both haven't been approved, is it based on the initial filing stamp uh, until the actual well, yes. approval comes through? Yeah, the law actually changed. It used to be the first person to invent, and now it's the first party to file. So it's very much in your best interest, as soon as your idea has crystallized to some tangible level, to make a filing. You can file subsequent follow-on applications that are related that have more detail, and you should. But um, if you often I find that people go to technical conferences where they hear a stimulating speaker, and they say, wow, that's applicable to what I do. And there are a lot of people in attendance, sometimes thousands and thousands, like the wonderful um, uh, event we're going to have in Miami, and the name just emerged right by emerge. Yes, mm-hmm. and there'll be thousands of people at emerge. Yep. And they're gonna they're gonna hear an idea, and then they're gonna go back to their drawing boards, and uh, some of them will file patent applications. So that's a great example of how you might have people uh, all in one day uh, have a trigger event, and it's a function of who's more diligent. So. Um, so before we ask some kind of fun questions, um, out of curiosity, um, are there ranges that people can expect to pay for patents, or is it like any other engagement with an attorney? It's impossible to say. It depends on the complexity, and it's essentially at the end of the day based on an hourly rate or some things flat fees. Well, I find that frustrating myself. I mean, I'm an attorney, and I deal with other attorneys sometimes for my personal, sometimes for my business needs. And I find it very, very frustrating dealing with attorneys because I can't ever pin people down. I ask um, a variety of attorneys for different types of things. Well, what do you guys normally charge for this? And I always get the, the waffly answer. Uh, patent is a little different. Most people can give you fairly specific rates. I have an hourly rate, but what we typically do, and what most attorneys will do, is they'll give you a, a fairly tight band. They'll say, based upon the disclosure you've given to me, we can prepare and file an application for between... $7,500 and $8,500. And I'm giving an, an example of something that's of moderate complexity. Sure. It, it, it varies by part of the country. Uh, I'm admitted in uh, Massachusetts. and I used to practice law there. And uh, I'm, I'm familiar with the market there. And my partner was in New York. And we have attorneys admitted all over the country. And rates do change regionally. But I will say Florida um, is, is cheaper than some of the uh, other major metro areas. And whether that's by hourly rate or by by project but it's not just whenever you ask for a quote always get the full cost so yes filing the application is one thing you have the attorney fee you have the patent office fee you have drawing fees but then there's the back and forth with the patent office if i do the accelerated i have a lot of back and forth in a year so it compresses my cost but if i go through the normal route and it's spread out over a couple of years i still have um, exchanges of correspondence with the patent office where we debate argue, however you want to characterize it, uh, about the patentability of the uh, the invention. And typically, we have to amend the application and make arguments. And each one of those rounds might cost between $1,500 and $2,500, again, depending on how hard the patent office pushes and what the technology is and how well prepared you were. But um, 
so that lack of preparation, by the way, it, it also hurts you in cost later. You, you run into dead ends and uh, you actually increase your costs. So if you do good, thorough work ahead of time, you you actually make the longer project cheaper. So in the end, what's, what should someone budget? I would say probably uh, you account for the filing, you account for a couple of rounds of correspondence and then issuance fees, and then the government charges you a tax every three and a half years to maintain your patent. So maybe you budget $15,000 from beginning to end uh, for a patent application. You might budget a few thousand for searching. But it's, a, it's, it's pretty, pretty close to that on average. So now I've gotten my patent, thanks to Christopher and Weisberg, and I'll be danged within three months I get sued by some corporation claiming that I've infringed on their patent. Uh, does this happen a lot, John? I, I hear it, you know, it's a strategy by some companies basically just to get people to, you know, submit. Uh, but if they lost, would they have to pay my fees? I mean, how do you, how, how do you deal with, you know, bad people in the IP world and, you know, patent trolls and the whole nine yards? Well, I, I deal with it, um, interestingly, almost every day, and I'm dealing with a troll right now and a, a computer invention-related thing. But they're not always bad people. They're people just like uh, the entrepreneur. They've gone out and they've invested in patents. Even the trolls, they spend a lot of money acquiring portfolios or acquiring property, just like a uh, someone buys investment condo units or apartment units, and they, they rent it out. And some of them are good landlords and bad. But They've gotten patents. They want to protect their market, their territory. So sometimes it's quite legitimate. They see you and they say, well, look, I got these patents and I want to keep my market to myself. A patent gives me a monopoly in this field. I get to do monopoly pricing. I mean, that's our pharma companies big time uh, before the drug goes generic and then they, they lose interest in the drug. Um, because the price multiple is staggering, especially in pharmaceuticals. But the patent gives you uh, that uh, that marketable that uh, that patent monopoly, and so yes, you want to police that territory, and so they'll send you a letter, and sometimes they have good information, and it's a it's a sincere, well done letter. Other times it's more of a fishing expedition, and they hope you just don't want to deal with it. So what do you do if you're if you're contacted? Um, first thing is you you watch what you say and what you write, and some people react because we communicate via email so often, and people get a letter and the. They give them the uh, the e finger, and then, <laughs> <laughs> and then they, so they go from there. But the, the point is, they they they've got to be careful because everything they say at that point now is part of a dispute and it's going to be used against you in a court of law. You all have heard that on Law and Order and those shows for years. Uh, so you should contact counsel and be honest. Uh, typically, uh, in fact, it's our mantra in the firm. We always say, remember, the client is not your friend, and the client is not telling you the truth and and they don't and they because they always tell us selective truths that's just part of human nature but the problem is if we don't have really the full truth about what you did or said or what your product is it'll eventually come out um as they say the, the truth comes out and, and if you were doing things deliberately deceptively your, your damages are increased and the penalties are harsher on you and you spent money for nothing so be honest with your counsel um they're your counsel they're, they're not trying to goof you over and um Tell them the good and the bad. And the, the attorney then will go through the questions and whatever, and you need to do a, a, a prompt study of the allegation and respond. That initial thing is really not that expensive. You might spend a couple thousand dollars um, formulating, a, doing an investigation and providing a response. And that really isn't that much in the scheme of things. Once you enter commerce, you're going to be sued by somebody for something, whether it's a, an employment-related suit, a tort action, whatever. It's just part of doing business. So what do you do? You you, you you're sued, and you're, or you get a cease and desist letter, which is more common, 
And many people, in fact, don't even send the letter anymore because they know people just ignore them and do nothing. And so what they do is they send another one or they just file a lawsuit against you. And now the cost goes way up because you have to make a court appearance in federal court for patent. And the requirements are just more rigorous and it's just much more expensive, even if your strategy at that point is to concede. Um, the problem, too, there is people at that point have, have now made damage claims that are sometimes absurdly high. And you don't want to default because then you have a default judgment entered against you. And it could be for millions. You go, oh, my God. If I had settled this, it could have been settled for $20,000. And now I've got a judgment against me for $2 million. And um, I know that sounds extreme, but that's the reality. So what can you do? You can do nothing when you get a reply. That can be your attorney strategy. It could be not a credible person and they're contacting many people. You can do a design around. You can change your product or change your mark if it's a trademark issue. And frankly, trademark disputes are more common because every product, every company has a name and they just collide. Um, you can negotiate a license, a cross license. Um, you could you know, license your technology to them and they to you. And both of you become a winner at that point. You can actually have a silver lining. You could find the person who accused you actually would be happy to do business with you. So sometimes I look at those disputes as, as opportunities in disguise. Um, you can accuse the infringer of, of patent invalidity. If, for example, business method patents and whatnot have been deemed largely invalid now, and people still sue under them, hoping that you'll cave in and not know that. And um, um, But if you push back, uh, sometimes they'll go away. You can litigate, which is um, very, very expensive, uh, or you can just throw in the towel and call it a day. So the short answer, I think, of what I just learned is, one, don't respond immediately. Two, go to my good counsel and get their advice because they have way more experience at this than I do. And disclose everything as possible to my attorney because if for no other reason, we have attorney-client privilege, and that's sacred information. So, um, John, we've got about a minute left. Um, out of curiosity, if I'm listening on the show and want uh, you know quality representation from Christopher and Weisberg, how do I get in contact with your firm? Should I contact you personally? Sure. If you call our number, um, 954-828-1488, you'll be connected to somebody. And we don't screen. A lot of attorneys are very, very hard to get a hold of. I usually cannot reach another attorney when I call them. Um, in fact, you will speak with an attorney when you call us or our website, www.cwiplaw.com. John, there's so much we could talk about uh, in the interest of disclosure to the audience. John is my intellectual property attorney, and I thought he's done a great job. But in the big picture, John, you've done a super job on educating the audience. I'm sure they're appreciative, and now they understand what intellectual property firms do and why a firm like uh, Christopher and Weisberg could be helpful. So thank you so much for being with us today, John. Well, thank you very much. Have a great day. Bye-bye.